This Week at Hope Point. The reason why the kings of the earth will fail in this final hour is because they have waged war against the king who is king over all the kingdoms of the world. And that's why they will fail. He, therefore, is the only safe place to be. And therefore, the most important question to ask in life is, am I in his kingdom? And when he returns, will he be able to refer to me as the chosen and the faithful and the called of Christ? We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. At the height of uh, the COVID virus, there were lots of people doing lots of things to try to stop uh, infection and germs from spreading, and their intentions were good, but sometimes their methods were not good as they were mixing things that shouldn't be mixed. Household chemicals that were fine on their own were things like bleach and ammonia, vinegar, rubbing alcohol peroxide, but when any of those were mixed together, they were sometimes just outright poisonous. So the fire department of Skokie, Illinois actually published a message, do not mix these together because they're, they're fatal. When you read Revelation 17, you, you really come to a place where hard to believe, but evil becomes more evil. It intensify, intensifies because of the combination of various forces that are working together. And specifically, as my title suggests, a, a woman, uh, a beast, and uh, 10 kings. We met the woman last week in Revelation 17:1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So we saw last week that, as we often do in Revelation, she's a symbol of something greater than herself. She's a metaphor of all of the rebellion that occurs in culture in every city on earth. She is just a picture of worldliness uh, that exists everywhere as we see in Verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So whenever you see this woman referred to in this message and next week, understand she represents rebellious culture. So you can imagine the conflict that emerged when the early church came and in that culture said, there is something greater than the pleasure she offers. There is one greater than all the kings you worship, and that's Jesus Christ. That message was so offensive to go against that rebellious culture that was costly to the early church. I saw that the woman was drunk, verse 6, with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So every believer in the first century church knew that if they preached a message of Christ's supremacy against worldly rebellion, that they were, their lives were in jeopardy or their uh, family friend relationships were in jeopardy, their jobs might be in jeopardy. It was costly to oppose this rebellious spirit called the woman. I read uh, just this week in the news, it was an 
Interesting thing, we all know what's going on since October 7th in Israel when Hamas invaded Israel territory and did a lot of killing. But then the anti-Semitism seemed to spread throughout the world and Felix Klein is the commissioner for the fight against anti-Semitism in in Germany. There's 100,000 Jews that live in Germany and they were in jeopardy. And this commissioner told them, I would not advise anybody to make their Jewish faith visible right now. You can imagine what that must feel like as a Jew. Don't wear the traditional uh, skull cap. Don't say you're a Jew. Well, this is how the Christians felt in the early church in Rome. The temptation was to, I can be safe if I don't make my faith visible. The pressure against the church intensified when this woman, which is the spirit of rebellion in the culture, actually combined with demonic supernatural forces uh, of evil. Described in verse three, then the angel carried me away in the spirit in, into, in the wilderness. There I saw that woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous, you know, God cursing names. And the beast had seven heads and 10 horns. So here's this combination that I alluded to, fatal combination I alluded to in my opening illustration. You have rebellious culture now linked with supernatural uh, energy of evil that now that new force is opposing the church and that force is called the beast. It's not a literal beast. Some of you or some people get upset when I say there's lots of parts of Revelation that aren't literal. You know that can't be literal. No way in the end times are people gonna worship a seven headed, 10-horned bull. That's not what they're gonna worship. The seven heads represent worldwide power as do the 10 horns, dominating power by this, by this, by this beast. If you feel like today, hmm, I think I have, I remember us talking about that beast a few months ago in the study of Revelation before. If you feel like you've heard that before, you would be right. We were introduced to the beast in chapter 13. The way we got to the beast was in Revelation 12, we saw the fall of the devil uh, when he was cast out of heaven, his rebellion. And then we saw on earth his attempt to overpower God, his plans, Christ, the church, through two forces on this planet, a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. The first beast, which is the beast we're gonna look at today in Revelation 17, is the beast that we normally associate with secular power. It could be the government, it could be a number of other secular powers that work against uh, the cause of God. The second beast in Revelation 13 really only serves to give power to the first beast. In other words, the secular power, uh, the second beast tells the world, put your trust in that first beast, that secular power. Uh, 
So when people ask about, are we near the end of times? I would say, rather than looking to the nation of Israel, look to the activity of these two beasts. If there is anything to look for in the end times, it will be when secular pressure and false religious logic lead many people to reject Christ and the truth of scripture. That's really more of a telltale sign of how close we could be to the end of times. It's when secular pressures and, and weird, we'll talk about that in just a moment in Matthew 24, weird, false, man-centered religious logic causes people to reject the church and the teaching of scripture. But today we're just gonna look at this first beast. Verse eight, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. So when you read verse eight, you know, if you don't know anything about Revelation, you say, well, that sounds like good news. It looks like it's going to destruction. So I, I mean, I got that immediately when I read the text. That's good news. But before then, the, the, the beast is going to be extraordinarily active with this, this cycle that really looks more like this. Uh, the beast of Revelation 17, he, he once had power, he lost power, he will regain power. That's, if you go back and read verse eight, that's what is really being described. And so then you have to say, well, what does that mean? So I'll give you a guess. Uh, it's not necessarily better than your guess, but it's, it's better than your guess if you never thought about it and just decide to start guessing. So I've thought about it. Still could be wrong. But what I think it means when Satan once had power, lost power, regained power, from the way that I see the way the book of Revelation is written, it's just these cycles over and over again of, um, <clears throat> you know, evil's on the rise and then the church is on the rise and then Evil tries to oppress the church, and it's just, we've seen that over and over again. I think this is simply another visitation of that cycle. So, when did Satan have his most power? Well, up to now, probably it was before Jesus came to earth. Uh, you could look at all the pagan religions of all the empires of the world, and they just lived in absolute devastating hopelessness. They in, were involved in all sorts of rituals and beliefs, and they knew they could never rid themselves of guilt. They knew there was a God out there, but all their rituals left them empty. Then you look at even the, the Jewish people. All of the promises of God in the Old Testament were precious. Messiah's coming, kingdom's coming. But until he came, the Jewish people, all they still had was these just promises. Wait, um, uh, animal sacrifices that didn't cleanse the conscience. So Satan still had power then because he caused people to live in despair. They didn't feel clean and set free in the New Testament. But then everything changed when Jesus came. Satan began to lose power the moment Jesus stepped on earth. Many ways we could... See that, all the, all the demonstrations of his miracles revealed power over evil, but one particular episode occurred in Luke 10. Jesus sent 72 of his followers out on a mission trip. Said, go preach and go heal 
and go exercise demon-possessed people in my name. And look what happens when they came back. Luke 10, 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus said, this is why. I saw Satan fall like lightning when you guys were preaching in my name. So when Christ came, there was a loosening of his grip on the world because of the beginning seeds of the hope of Christ. And then, of course, when he died on the cross for our sins and Satan couldn't stop that, look how Satan lost more power. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins, couldn't do a thing. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He's taken it away. He nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan, again, loses more power to haunt and intimidate humanity. And then, as the church began to go out from Jerusalem, went up north, Judea, Samaria, and out throughout the Roman Empire. Many people believed the gospel and Satan began to lose more and more of people that he once owned. But as with every uh, gospel offensive that took place in the Roman Empire, there was a counter satanic offensive. And so thousands of believers were slaughtered, were killed in the first 300 years of the evangelistic missionary zeal of the church. Sometimes so much, it looked like maybe the church, you know, in certain locations wasn't gonna make it. And then lo and behold, you have this commentary on church history by Ralph Winter that I just love. Perhaps the most spectacular triumph of Christianity in history was its conversion of the Roman Empire in roughly 200 years. If you look at a map of where the gospel spread by the time all those first three centuries were over, it's unbelievable. Satan again lost more and more of his grip. But here comes the counteroffensive by evil. AD 400, the Roman Empire, which had been a great spreading place for the gospel, was conquered by the barbarians known as the Visigoths and Vandals. And they came and and they easily, they walked right across the border and destroyed Rome. Not even a fight, really. And they could have easily wiped out Christianity. But instead, as they began to migrate, as the barbarians went back north, they were hearing the gospel from this saturated, gospel-saturated Roman Empire, and they, some of these barbarians became Christians and became preachers up north. So the gospel surges. Well, then AD 800, you look at a place like in Western Europe, had been ruled by Charlemagne, who was pro-church, pro-Christianity, really honestly too much, used the power of the state to pressure people to become Christians, not proud of that, but Christians had it sort of easy under Charlemagne, but then the Vikings came and they were wicked and cruel and particularly harsh against the church. They enjoyed destroying churches and even killing those inside while the church service was going on. They kidnapped monks and interestingly, they kidnapped so many Christians and 
took them away from their homeland, that it was those Christians living in new lands that became evangelists in those lands, even leading some of the Vikings to Christ. Christianity resurges. So over the past 2,000 years, we continue to see this cycle over and over again of Satan loses his grip, gospel surges, Satan comes back and applies pressure, and it looks like, um, you know, to some, the death nail of, of Christianity. You look in the 1730s at uh, the colonies before we actually became a, a nation, uh, as we were becoming a nation, we were given this, you know, this promise of freedom, but people were throwing it away. They lived selfish, chaotic, immoral, drunken lives, and it looked like the nation would self-destruct before it started. And then all of a sudden, God raises up. And you can see this quote by this one Presbyterian pastor, religion is dying and ready to take its last breath in the church. And then all of a sudden, you had the preaching of, of George Whitfield, the great Episcopalian lightning rod from England, and John Wesley, and uh, George, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and revival sweeps across the colonies. And so it's just over and over again. Then that begins to die out, and then you, you go all the way up to something like the, the 60s, which were not great for the nation at all. And you have this magazine cover, Time's most famous magazine cover ever, of uh, Is God Dead? And uh, their, their, their premise was that people in the United States want a new version of God, not the traditional biblical version of God. It was a crazy time in, uh, in the States. LSD was on the rise and Eastern religions were now being embraced. Transcendental meditation classes were offered in college and the mantra of young people was question everything, question authority. And so it looked bleak and then God raised up people like Billy Graham, who preached uh, in, in the worst of times, and we just saw hundreds of thousands of people line stadiums there in New York to hear the gospel of Christ in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. So the gospel resurges. And then, you know, you look at you know, a, a generation like ours right now where things don't look great for a lot of college students and what they're being told by by liberal professors, and you wonder, you know, has, uh, have we lost an entire generation of, of college students? Uh, not, at, not at all. I, I enjoyed uh, reading in the middle of September, just last month, uh, one night, this event happened at, at uh, Auburn, where thousands of kids uh, on the Auburn campus gathered in Neville Arena, uh, to hear the preaching of the gospel. And 200 of them received Christ that night and demanded by the people who put on the event, go find us a lake and baptize us. 200 were baptized that night. This young man in the middle is an, an athlete. He plays football at uh, Auburn. And uh, to his right, to your left on the screen, is the head football coach uh, of Auburn, Hugh Freeze, helping baptize one of his players. So this is the cycle that I think John is talking about in <clears throat> Revelation that the beast, you know, he, he, he once was, <clears throat> then he was not, 
and yet will come. That, that cycle has happened repeatedly in history, <clears throat> certainly will be repeated in an extreme time that we'll look at today at, at the end of history, but I think that's really what John is talking about is the, the cycles of evil overcome by uh, preaching and worship and evangelism and then evil has a counter offensive. So during all of this time when all of this is going on, especially as we move to the last days, that, you know, w we get excited about the destruction of this beast. If you're a believer, you, you're longing for this, this to be in the Bible. I want this spirit of evil that brings so much to be destroyed, but you're the only ones who want that. It says, you know, it's those whose, everybody whose names have not been written in the book of life from the beginning of the world, when they see the beast, they're astonished and they love him. They love the evil that he is bringing about. They love the resurgence of, of, of evil. The world loves the beast because he is the greatest leader of the greatest rebellion against Christ and the church in the history of the world. And as we're gonna see today, as we get closer and closer to the end of time, he will use powerful leaders and institutions to help in that rebellion. Revelation 17, nine, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Fortunately, I'm here. <laughs> you thought this was confusing. This is really hard. I'm not wise. The seven heads are seven heels on which the woman sits. That part of this passage is pretty easy because that was just a, a reminder to the early church, you live in Rome because it was called the city of seven hills and the, the beast for you, first century believers, is gonna look like the government of Rome coming against you. That's, that's about the last time the passage will look easy. <laughs> That's easy. Verse 10, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen. So we got, you know, got five and then, and then one is, so that's really six kings now in, in there. And then the other has not yet come. But when he comes, he must remain only for a little while. The beast who once was, now is, is not. He is an eighth king he belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. So, what do we make of all of that? Well, you got a couple choices. You could pull your hair out. <laughs> Wish you could see Roger Luttrell before he started teaching the book of Revelation. Full head of hair. <laughs> you pull your hair out and say, there's no hope for understanding this. Or you can be a little bit arrogant and say, I fully understand who all these leaders are in history. And people have, have tried to do that. They've tried to identify all these kings. Like, you can find six kings that the early church would have known about, six Roman emperors, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, 
Nero, Vespasian, Domitian. But, you know, that these were the six that would have, been, that would have come in the time frame of writing of Revelation. But, you know, Tiberius, he was a good guy. He didn't mess with the church. Caligula, uh, he was the first emperor that said, put uh, my statue uh, in every city to be worshiped. So we'll call him a bad guy. Claudius, he didn't really pick on the Christians. He did expel all the Jews from Rome. So it's sort of iffy there. Nero, absolute psychopath, maniac. Uh, he's the one who executed the apostle Paul, Peter, and uh, burnt a lot of Christians. Domitian, certainly a bad guy. Uh, he's the one who sentenced the writer of the book of Revelation to exile on Patmos. So, you know, if you're trying to find six kings that were evil, you can't find them in those, in that list, because not all of them were against the church. So that, that's sort of, you know, I'm trying to find six, because I gotta find six, because Revelation's literal. I gotta find literal everything. Well, I'm so desperate to find six, I'll go back in history and I'll look at nations that have come against the people of God. Assyria did, Babylon, Persia, Medes, Greece, and Rome. So, uh, well, let's see. I gotta get six, so I'll... I'll say the Persian Medes are two different empires. One, two, three, four, five, six. And two people do these, these gymnastics with every conceivable ruler in history because they're, they, they want to, to, to say that the book of Revelation is gonna very clearly tell us who the Antichrist is. And that is, that is not true and and, but this is why people do that. So, so what is another way of, of interpreting this? This would be my, this would be, this is what I would say the way to interpret this portion of Revelation 17. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is the other, uh, the other has not yet come, but when he comes, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was, now is, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. This is my interpretation of Revelation 17. I don't think God wants us to do any fiddling around with trying to figure out how many kings have come and where they are, how many world empires have come and gone. I think John wants to say that there is coming one evil ruler, leader, or institution, organization called the beast, and he is called number seven and also called number eight, which should confuse you. <laughs> the reason it, I think it's, he says that is if you added up the seven worst, most evil anti-church, anti-Christian, uh, anti-truth leaders, kingdoms of the world. You add up seven and you get a new one. That would be the eighth, the worst in history. That's who the beast is. A combination of all of evil rulers 
leaders and institutions. And, and by the way, he is called, you know, you'll hear the term Antichrist, and you might wonder why I didn't see the Antichrist in Revelation. It's not used in that book, but it is used by the writer of Revelation uh, four other times in the other books that he wrote of first, second, and third, third John. And so for thousands, hundreds of years, especially, people have been trying to guess who this Antichrist is. So people used to say it was Joseph Stalin with all of his killing. Then they said it was um, uh, Adolf Hitler with all of his killing, Jews and Christians. Then uh, when Saddam Hussein came to power, there were lots of books about him. He was the guy. Today you'll read it's Vladimir Putin. Other people will say this Antichrist is President Xi of China. I, and I just think God would say to us that it's a, it's a waste of time. It's better to understand, as I said before, if you added up all of the wickedness and evil of all the empires and leaders and institutions that have come against the church, this is the intensity of the evil that will come against righteousness in the end times, and it will have a lot of help spreading its wickedness. Uh, Revelation 17, 12, the, the 10 horns, remember this beast had seven heads and 10 horns. The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. So we just, said, we just had a problem with trying to solve the other kings. Now we've got 10 more. And so when I was a, like a college student, uh, everybody said that these 10 kings were the, the 10 nation confederacy, like when, when the Euro was formed, the 10 nation confederacy in Europe, that's the 10 kings and they're gonna give their power to the beast and the beast is gonna do his thing. But I think we've learned by now in the book of Revelation, John really doesn't, he doesn't really care much about numbers meaning anything. They're just, the, the more outrageous the better or, 10 could be 20, could be 50, could be 100. He's just trying to say that there's gonna be a global, culture-wide coalition of secular powers that are working with this demonic leader called the beast to oppose the spread of the gospel through, through the church. The beast... It's going to have the help. Ten kings, ten countries, a hundred countries, industries, universities. It's just a coalition of power. So I don't think that's the point. Well, what's the point? For me, this is the point that's a point of hope for me. that at some point in history, there is going to be an increase of evil that the world has never seen. Put all the kingdoms, seven, add them all together, get eight. Never before will there be perversion and persecution like this period of time in history. Up to now, God has restrained it. Evil has not been as bad as evil wants to be. But there will be a final hour when God 
will let evil be unleashed with new ferocity. Evil will become far more popular, demonic deception, far more severe. People will be more spiritually blind than ever. They'll believe outrageous things more than ever in this final hour. And the persecution against Christ and his church will be greater than it's ever been in history. You say, well, where's the hope in that? This only going to last an hour is the hope. Again, John, what do you mean by that? He said, I'm not saying. But one hour compared to thousands of years means it's going to be relatively short and it's going to be short because of the mercy of God when he takes us through suffering. I don't know what your one hour of suffering is today, but I know that Jesus knows your limit. Evil is not in charge of your life, child of God. Your destiny is not determined by any power or any person. Jesus was crucified because he chose to give up his life. He chose the day of his death and he chose the day of his resurrection. The God who forgives our sins is the God who has formed the galaxies. Every millisecond of your suffering is governed by a heart of infinite love and wisdom. He knows your limits and he knows the church's limits and it will be just one hour. If you really want to know why you should be grateful that hour is so brief, Jesus told us that no one can handle it. Matthew 24, this is basically the revelation of, Matthew, of, of the Gospels. Matthew 24, 9, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. There's that confederacy. Ten, ten nations is now all nations. See, ten grew. Ten got bigger. If those days had not been cut short, there's your hour, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. False messiahs and false prophets, prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the church. And there's the second beast of Revelation 13. He's the religious arm of this unholy trinity, dragon, beast one, beast two. But right at that time, when everybody's about to go under, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from one end of the earth to the other. One hour. And in this one hour, the intense effort of this global coalition of world powers, institutions, people, leaders, is to destroy the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Evil loves to partner with evil. So more than ever, culture is aligning itself with 
demonic powers to try to suppress righteousness uh, and the m- growth of the church here and throughout the world. So as we near the end of times, you'll see an increasing partnership between evil and business, evil and government, evil and academia, evil in the movie industry, and evil in social media. And all of these partnerships between culture and evil are the purpose of waging war against Christ and his church. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he's Lord of lords, king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Now, as much as ever, people are asking the question, is this the last hour? And they're asking that question because of the increase of wickedness and like we would see you know, in a new way in Israel, October 7th, 2,000 terrorists living in Gaza, crossed the border into Israel. It's interesting, when that bombing started, every Jewish person fled to a safe room in their house, a bomb shelter. Because since 1993, every house that was built in Israel was required to have a bomb shelter. Because this is how much evil comes against that country. Since 93, every house has a bomb shelter. Because it, on average, twice a week, missiles from other nations penetrate Israeli airspace. And they're normally knocked down because of the technology called the Iron Dome. But if a missile gets through, the government wants people to have the safety of a bomb shelter. But those bomb shelters cannot have locked doors because first responders need to be able to get in if a bomb fell on your house so they have to have it unlocked. So when Hamas entered Israel that day, they knew where all the families would be in safe rooms of unlocked doors. In just a short time, and that morning, 1,300 Jews were, were killed. And it wasn't just the type of people that were killed. It was just, just say it was the weak. The weak that were targeted. So people look at that and say, are we in the last hour? Because of the rise in violence. Let me say one thing, because you probably have asked, you know, where am I with, this, with Israel? I, I know that the beast hates Israel, but not because of what you probably think. Satan hates Israel because the Bible says that toward the end of history, there will be a fair, fairly large number of Jews who profess faith in Christ. Romans 9 through 11. That's why Satan hates Israel. To keep people from coming to Jesus because ultimately his rift is with Christ and the church. So in the end times, 
God will do whatever he has to do to protect Israel until those, that number comes to Christ. So people again ask the question, is this the last hour? The answer is, we don't know. This is the only thing we do know in terms of violence by the beast against the church. More people have died for Jesus Christ in the last century than all the centuries combined before. Up until the 20th century, 70 million followers of Christ were killed, but 46 million of those, or through the 20th century, 76 million, but 46 million were killed in the 20th century. So the rise of violence, the rise of evil, the rise of perversion. So people ask, is this the final hour? You, you know, I'll never answer that, but this is what I can't answer. You need a safe place. We saw October 7th where a safe place is not. The only safe place is with Jesus. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he's Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. The reason why the kings of the earth will fail in this final hour is because they have waged war against the king who is king over all the kingdoms of the world. And that's why they will fail. He, therefore, is the only safe place to be. And therefore, the most important question to ask in life is, am I in his kingdom? And when he returns, will he be able to refer to me as the chosen and the faithful and the called of Christ? You can have a lot of titles in life. Student, parent, teacher, writer, artist, musician, banker, barber, uh, Millionaire, billionaire, engineer. But the only title that matters in life is when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes back, will he refer to you by that title, the called and the chosen and the faithful of Jesus. They're the only ones who are safe. So today, He is calling you to turn to Him. Will you say yes? He is choosing to forgive you of everything you've ever done by shedding blood for your sins. Will you say yes? And He's offering you strength to enable you to be faithful no matter what He asks you to endure. Will you say yes? We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.